0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to AUKUS Amplified, the podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Today, we're highlighting several of the many outstanding papers presented at the 31st annual meeting of the association, including the award papers. My name is Stefano Bini, and I'm the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee at AUKUS. I'm also a professor at the University of California San Francisco. Today, I'll be joining as co-host on this podcast, by Dr. Eli Kamara, who is a member of our committee. Dr. Kamara, welcome to the podcast, and
1: please introduce yourself to our audience and introduce the paper we're highlighting today. Thank you, Stefano. I'm Ellie Kamara. I work at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. I'm also very excited to participate today on this podcast. The title of the paper that we are highlighting is, Does Low Back Pain Improve Following Total Hip Arthroplasty? We are very grateful that Dr. Jonathan Vigdorchik is here from the Hospital for Special Surgery, who has taken the time out of their busy practice to join us today. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you, Dr. Beanie and Dr. Kamara. It's a pleasure to be here, really. Thanks for, for highlighting our paper.
0: Awesome. Listen, thank you, Dr. Udorchich, it's fantastic. So happy to have you here. So you're the lead author on this paper. Please tell our audience on why you're interested in this topic to begin with, although for those of us who follow your, your research, it, this is part of a bigger question you've been asking yourself.
2: So every day in my practice, patients are coming in, they've got back pain, they have hip pain, and a lot of them ask the same question. Will my back pain get better after my hip replacement, or should I do my hip replacement or my back surgery first? So naturally, it led us to ask this type of question. Does the back pain improve after hip replacement?
0: That's a really good aim for this paper. What's the background to it? Where does this fit into the bigger context of back issues and hip replacement?
2: Very frequently, back pain and hip pain coexist. We see large joint arthritis, hips, spines, knees. Maybe there's a genetic component to it where all these large joint arthritis coexist. So we see this very commonly in our practice. And if you start looking at this, the incidence of people who have back pain in your practice is very high. It's almost up to 50% of your hip replacement patients. So we've looked at this from a holistic point of view, everything to do with how does a spine, how does previous spine surgery all relate to things we do during, before, after our hip replacements.
1: Dr. Vigdorkchik, we'd like to get into some of the aspects of your paper next. Can you tell us more about the study design?
2: So for this particular study, we looked at 500 patients. This was between mine and Dr. Jarabek, my co-author and we found every patient that had back pain going or into their hip replacement surgery. So we wanted to look at all the patients that had back pain concomitantly with their hip arthritis. And from those patients, we were trying to examine how many of them where their back pain went away. We looked at all their preoperative spinal pelvic analyses and we measured different parameters that we've talked about before, pelvic tilt, sacral slope, pelvic incidence and lumbar lordosis, which is something that the spine surgeons use a lot. And we're trying to correlate all those different things with whether the back pain was resolving or not.
1: That's a lot of different data points. Are these data that you commonly collect for all of your standard hip replacement patients?
2: So we've been publishing on this now for a really long time. This has become standard of care for my particular practice and also some of my partners. That's not the case across all of our institution. I think we're slowly becoming, we have 35 arthroplasty surgeons, we're probably close to about 10, so a third are doing some sort of preoperative spinal pelvic analysis. And you don't have to measure all these angles. I, if I had to pick only a few, I would start looking at the anteropelvic pelvic plane and the sacral slope measurements. Those are the easiest to see, the easiest to understand. And then along your journey, you may start going deeper into this and measuring other, t- other things that we've looked at.
1: Can you tell us more about why you divided the patients into the three categories of less than 10, 10 to 25 and greater than 25? Was that based off of some of previous analysis or some other literature?
2: So that's a great question. I think this all comes back to the history of the spinal-pelvic relationship and total hip replacement. It really started with the late Dr. Doerr, who we pay a tremendous amount of respect to for drawing our attention to this. Him in collaboration with Dr. Lazanic from Europe, that cross-pollination across different countries internationally, things that Dr. Beeney has been involved with the International Committee through AUKUS, really those types of relationships fostered this whole understanding. Right, it's a collaboration between hip surgeons and spine surgeons, and that's how we're able to answer these complex questions.
1: Why don't you tell us more about your results?
2: So when we stratified this by their spinal mobility, normal versus stiff versus a hypermobile category, dor described the hypermobile category, which is actually a stiff hip that really drives the spine to move significantly more when you sit down. The ones with the hypermobile, every single one of those had back pain resolution because their hypermobility also resolved after surgery. I think in a bigger scheme of this, we're looking at pre versus post-operative changes because when I tell you something is existing pre-operatively, I need the same condition to be present or to be able to predict the condition post-operatively for it to be valid. So all the hypermobiles resolved and all of their back pain went away. In the normals, they had a very high percentage of their back pain go away in the high 90s. And it was the ones with the stiff spines that were almost fused, on their way to a biologic fusion, or even previous spine surgery, that's where we had the kind of mixed resolution. That was more of a 50-50 chance. So 50% is still Can
1: pretty you, high. You mentioned that there are some sacrum changes with the measurements on stand, from standing to sitting. For those of us that don't have an EOS machine available in our facility, are those types of things that we could see on our standing AP pelvis x-ray, or are there any other sort of clues about that relationship?
2: So... The sacrum mobility is a dynamic change. You need to have two x-rays and see how there's a movement between them. So you have to have a standing lateral and a sitting lateral x-ray. It does not have to be an EOS. You can do it on your regular x-ray machines. But the clues that'll clue you into something on an AP pelvis x-ray, if you have an AP pelvis that looks like an outlet view, that's somebody that has a spine deformity. They're probably going to have a stiff spine and they're probably going to have back pain that's going to continue. If you see the opposite, You have an inlet x-ray. That's somebody who might have a hip flexion contracture. With the hip flexion contracture, you get this compensatory hyperlordosis. And those patients, actually, all their back pain went away because that hip flexion contracture went away, the hyperlordosis went away, and then their back pain went away.
1: Those are really helpful pearls, I think, for everyone listening in the audience.
2: You know, we've been thinking about this for a long time and really stratifying it, going back to the door classification for how he helped us helped us evolve into our hip spine classification and now helps us really make predictions on what do we do differently during our hip replacements and also for counseling our patients on whether their back pain is gonna go away or not.
1: Keith, can give you, can you some of the final conclusions of your paper.
2: To really summarize everything, about 50% of patients undergoing hip replacement surgery are gonna have back pain. If you have a hypermobile spine or even a normal spine mobility, there's a high percentage, greater than 90% of the chance that your back pain's going to go away. And it's that stiff spine category that is really variable whether their back pain goes away or not.
1: In your paper, you talked about the sacral slope and how that was predictive of patients who had resolution of their hip pain. Can you tell us a bit more about the pelvic incidence and why you think that wasn't predictive?
2: So, pelvic incidence is a morphological parameter of the pelvis. It has to do with the anterior to posterior width of the pelvis. So, that in of itself didn't really have any predictive effect. But the link between pelvic incidence and lumbar lordosis, this is something that the spine surgeons look at. They look at the balance of our spine. You know for each one of us to stand upright our head needs to be basically over our spine and our hips otherwise we're going to fall over either frontwards or backwards so we have what's called a balanced spine spine's like a slinky you've got a lordosis and then a kyphosis and then another cervical lordosis and then your head is sitting right over everything when you have a pelvic incidence minus lumbar lordosis mismatch when you're not balanced that's when you have spine deformities then you have back pain and then your back pain's not going to resolve. That's one of those findings where it wasn't quite about the pelvic incidence. It's the link of the pelvic incidence with the lumbar lordosis and the overall kind of person's global alignment.
1: I I like the slinky metaphor a lot. So if someone has a stiff slinky, they're not going (laughs) to resolve with their hip pain.
2: Yeah, that slinky's not going to go down the stairs very well.
0: Dr. Vidorczyk, how does this sit currently within the standard care i don't think we think despite all the work you've done i don't think we're really thinking as much as we should be thinking about the spinal pelvic relationship and for a lot of people that need to get the ap lateral imaging standing and sitting is really a bit of a hurdle i really love what you told us about looking at the ap pelvis you're to learn a lot from that the fact that the more flexible spines are the ones that are most likely to benefit from the hip replacement i think we can all take that home What's the next area of research in the spinal-pelvic relationship space that you think needs to be addressed that you plan to look at?
2: From a standard of care standpoint, for every knee replacement patient we do, we get a hip x-ray. For every hip replacement patient we do, we should get at least a standing lateral spine x-ray. This is something Dr. out at HSS got from the 1970s. Dr. Salvati, who is still in practice, he continues to do that to this day. So I think that part of the standard of care needs to evolve and then people can take the next step in their journey. So looking at that standing lateral only, we need to identify one very important thing, and that's where the pelvis is in relation to space. Because if you see a large posterior pelvic tilt, those are the patients that are at the highest risk of dislocation. And if that's where people want to stop, that's probably the absolute simplest way I can make it. Get one X-ray, Look at the pelvis being posteriorly tilted, and that's where you need to beware and maybe do something differently during your hip replacement. So let me stop yeah. you there for a second because we don't have the benefit
0: of visuals here. When you say posterior tilt, does that look like a straight spine or a hyperlordotic spine?
2: So it's more like a straight spine, and it's when the ASIS is posterior to the pubic symphysis. Okay, that's it's These a really little old ladies, the little old ladies you see, where they've got a hunched back, but then their back is completely flat, and they're walking around like that. you can pick it up just from watching somebody walk
1: so that would essentially be an outlet view pelvis that would exactly
2: it would make you an outlet view on your ap pelvis x-ray you have to be careful in how you take your ap pelvis x-ray because if you take it too low everyone is going to look like an outlet and you know anybody who takes hip knee ankle x-rays and does it in a three x-ray fashion where they stitch them together the pelvis always looks like an outlet it's the same thing that beam is just shot too low for a proper ap pelvis
0: That's a very important point to make as well uh, for us. So listen, I think you've done a really good job over the last several years of bringing this topic to our attention and uh, appreciate you giving credit to where credit is due. It's not a new idea, but it has sort of fallen off the radar for many of us. And this is yet another really good paper coming out of your group that helps us uh, better understand how to address this topic. And I think, as you point out, Dr. Kamara, some of those pearls are really, really helpful. Should we just reiterate what those are?
1: So I think Dr. Vigdorjic has told us that, you know, when you have someone that has a outlet spine, you really want to be mindful of that hip spine relationship that we can expect that for our patients that have lower back pain after their hip replacement, if they have a flexible spine, that their back pain should resolve after their hip replacement. And to be very mindful of those changes with regards to the sacral slope. And that could be one of the big clues that we have look moving forward.
2: No, I think that's about it, right? These pathologies very frequently coexist, and if you look at them in a holistic fashion, you can help counsel your patients, and really that leads to a lot of better patient satisfaction. I mean, hip replacements do great, but hip replacements with people who still have back pain or a hip replacement when they didn't need it because it was their back anyway, they don't do so well. So we'll yeah, get them together. Great
0: points. Yep. A little pearl that you got snuck in there is that you should always get an AP pelvis in every total knee you're doing, right? I think that the snuck in there, not really part of this topic, but very good point to make. I
2: can't tell you how many times I've seen knee pain coming to me and, and I examine their knee. It's fine. You get an AP pelvis x-ray. It's a horrible hip. Yeah, absolutely. Well, an outstanding paper. Congratulations. And now I'd like to close this
0: particular podcast and thank both of you for participating. Thanks for having us.
2: Uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: And so with that, we'll close out this podcast and ask our audience to consider subscribing to the AUKUS Amplified podcast series on your favorite podcast channel. Till then, from all of us at AUKUS Amplified, have an amazing day. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.